welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, my name is Eduardo de la Peña. I'm counsel at Reed Smith International Arbitration Group, and I'm very happy to welcome everyone to Reed Smith's Arbitral Insights podcast series, a new episode on it. And this is a very, an episode that is particularly pertinent in the moment we're in. We'll talk about the intersection between international arbitration and the United Nations Convention on Contracts for International Sale of Goods, known generally as CISG. And for this episode, I'm particularly pleased that we have with us a real expert in the subject matter. Uh, Edgardo Munoz is with us. Edgardo is a law professor, an arbitration practitioner, and author. Uh, he's tenure professor of law at the University of Panamericana in Mexico since 2014, has held appointments as well as visiting professor and scholar in renowned universities as Columbia University in New York, University of Turin in Italy, University of Montreal and McGill University in Quebec. He's member of the prestigious advisory council of the UN Convention on Contracts for International Sale of Goods, CISG, and is a current correspondent of Mexico uh, before UNIDRA. He obtained law degrees in Mexico and France, holds Master of Laws degrees from the University of Liverpool in England and the University of California, Berkeley in the US, has a PhD, uh, summa cum laude, from the from Basel University in Switzerland. He was part as well of the arbitration and sports law team of prestigious of a prestigious Swiss law firm for several years. In more recent times, he has been acting independently as consul, chairman of tribunals, and sole arbitrator in numerous domestic and international arbitrations under the rules of the most prominent arbitral institutions of Mexico, the United States, and Europe. He is vice president of the arbitration committee of the ICC in Mexico, in Jalisco, Mexico, and he's a representative for the ICC Global Commission on Arbitration and ADR for the ICC Mexico. Edgardo regularly publishes legal literature that contributes to the global debate and reinforces expertise about complex issues of international contracts, arbitration, and sports law. This includes, very pertinent for our discussion today, the second edition of Global Sales and Contract Law, co-authored with uh, Professor Ingeborg Schwechner and published by Oxford University Press. So we literally have with us the man who wrote the book on CISG. So I, I'm very, very happy uh, to have here uh, with us uh, to discuss this very pertinent topic Edgardo. Edgardo, welcome. Welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Eduardo. It's, it's a great pleasure to be with you and uh, with all the audience of Red Smith uh, podcast, interesting podcast on arbitration insights. 
and especially to discuss this issue about the interaction between the CRSG and arbitration. Very good, Edgardo. So let's let's get into it. But probably where we should start it's it's providing a, a bit of an introduction about what the CIG is and how did it come to fruition. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Of course. Yeah, the CIG is an international treaty that governs sales transactions, uh, in particular for goods, goods uh, which may be generally defined as commodities, uh, finished or manufactured products, but also there are some discussions that we may uh, later on touch upon, which is software. And this convention was uh, drafted and negotiated during the 70s and came into effect in the 80s um, after, uh, after the Vienna Conference in, in 1980. And it came into force after there was uh, 10 ratifications around uh, 1988. So um, that's the CIG. Very good. And let me ask you something. The, and has, you know, there are many international treaties, right? And some, some are very successful, like, for example, the New York Convention on the Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. Uh, and others are there, but they are really not really part of the laws of any country or, or have no real application. But what about the CISG? Is, 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 can we characterize the CISG as a success story in the context of the international treaty applications? I think we can, Eduardo. I think that probably together with the New York Convention, the CISG is one of the most successful international treaties dealing with commercial issues, with commercial law. The CSG has today 95 contracting states, basically all industrialized countries with two exceptions or big notable exceptions are part of the CSG. And these exceptions are the UK and India. The rest of the world has uh, adopted the CSG as the law applicable to international sale of goods. And therefore, I think that by if we count by the number of arbitral awards published and court decisions that have been gathered in, in specialized databases um, reflecting on the current practice of the CAG, we can, I think, say that uh, the CAG has been a success in terms of actual real application. Very good. And let me ask you something. So how... How does it uh, become applicable, the CISG? Meaning that, is it one of those cases where only parties whose nationality is one of the member of the contracted states, I mean, only the contrast between those types of parties is, is governed by, could be governed potentially by CISG, or is the scope broader? The scope is, is the, uh, the main rule is, as you mentioned, the CSG applies to international sale of goods between businesses or parties which are located in contracting states. And actually, the term is who have their place of business in contracting states. It's not the domicile, it's not the place of incorporation. It's a place of business broadly defined. And that's the first, the first um, rule. 
However, uh, the second rule of the CSG with, in, in, with regards to its application is that the CSG may also apply when the rules of private international law of the judge who is competent to, uh, to know a CSG case lead to the application of the law of a contracting state because the CSG has been ratified by one state Uh, let's give as example France. The CSG has become French law with regards international sale of goods. So if, for example, a judge in England uh, who is not a, a, a contracting state, England, uh, the UK, comes to the solution under its own conflict of law rules that the law applicable is France, And we are in front of an international transaction, international sale of goods. The CSG would apply as part of French law, irrespective of the fact that probably one of the parties or none of the parties has its place of business in a CSG contracting state. So those are the main two rules for applying the CSG. This is very interesting because I think I have told you this, this story before. I have one matter where I was representing a Mexican entity and in the other side, there was a, an Indian party in the case. And, you know, the Mexico is party to the CISG, but not India, as you just mentioned. Notwithstanding the application of the, the governing law, let me put this way, of the arbitration, it was Mexico. And because the CISG is part of Mexican law, so the applicable law ended up being on that specific arbitration because we were talking about the sale of some, of some chemical products, it was, was Mexican law. Was, was the CISG was part of Mexican law? So I think that, that's where you are, what you are referring, I think. That's, that's correct, yes. Uh, and in any occasion when there is a choice of law clause designating The, the national law of a contracting state without excluding the CIG because the CIG allowed, allows itself in Article 6 to be excluded. But without exclusion, the CIG would, up, would apply in those cases where a national law of a contracting state has been selected. Very good. Uh, let me ask you something, because, of course, when we use the phrase international sales of goods, I mean, that seems very broad and can cover many things. So uh, being a bit more specific, what are the type of sales that are covered by the CISG? And probably more pertinent, which, which type of contract or sales are not, are not included or covered? Article 2 is the is relevant provision uh, within the CISG to determine or to answer this question. In general, the CSG applies to goods. And goods, it should be defined within uh, or by the rules of interpretation of the CSG itself that are in Article 7. Uh, and this rule says that we should promote uniform application, uniformity in the understanding and good faith. So goods are understood to be movables. And as I mentioned before, they are commodities or manufactured products. It may include software when the software is 
um, where the property of the software is completely transmitted to the buyer. Otherwise, it may be considered only a license. And besides that, everything would everything that falls into this category would be included in the convention unless it is expressly excluded. And Article 2 tells us, for example, that consumer transactions are excluded. So if you buy goods, even though we have two parties with places of business in different contracting states, the CAG will not apply because those goods will be used for personal or family use. The CAG also excludes the sale of uh, securities, for example, shares, stocks, and, and all that um, represents equity investments. It will exclude uh, money. It will exclude from commodities, interestingly, electricity, but not oil and gas. And also will exclude the sale of aircraft, uh, ships, boats, and all those exclusions, uh, express exclusions, were simply because the delegates were negotiating the, uh, the convention uh, thought that there will be uh, too many difference in, in, in to be breached between contracting states, and they decided to leave that aside. Something important to mention at this state, Eduardo, is that the CAG governs practically all issues concerning the international sales of good contract, except for two things. Uh, one of them is the effect that the contract contract of sale has on the property of the goods. The CAG actually obliged the seller, bounds the seller to deliver the property of the goods, but the CAG doesn't tell us when those property when those property passes, or whether it is possible that the seller enters into the contract for goods that he does not own. That's something that the CAG doesn't govern, and therefore there will be another law that should be applicable to that case. And the CAG does not concern issues of validity of the contract, except when it tells us that that question of validity is going to be governed by the convention. For example, the CAG tells us that the contract may be um, concluded and proved by any means not only in writing. And so that's a validity, a formal validity provision that is addressed by the CAG, that is covered by the CAG. The rest, for example, uh, whether there was mistake, unconscionability, uh, fraud, uh, it's something that the CAG does not govern. So in those instances, national law will be one that will apply for, to govern that situation. Correct. Okay. The, the judge or the arbitrator will need to uh -huh. um, determine which law would be the proper law for those questions. Understood. And let me ask you something about because the, uh, the other areas that the CIGC does govern, and probably we can highlight or talk about one of some of the key features on those ones. What about contract interpretation? What is kind of like the, the emphasis, the focus of the, of the CIGC? 
Yeah, um, contract interpretation is, is, is an issue covered by the convention in Article 8. And the rules in Article 8 reflect harmonization in terms of what is um, usually the rules of interpretation in the civil law and in the common law. If you look at Article 8.1, you will find what is called the subjective criteria of interpretation. It gives um, value to what, to the understanding that the parties, the contracting parties, had when they made the statements, when they did certain conduct, when they performed certain conduct, if the other party could have not been unaware. That's the first rule. You will interpret any statement or conduct of a party in the sense that that party uh, wanted to give within the meaning that that party wanted to meet if the other party could not have been unaware of that meaning. This rule of interpretation is difficult to apply because, as you know, Eduardo, when there is conflict about the meaning of a, of a given clause in a contract or provision, the other party will say that that's not the interpretation. Uh, he understood a totally different interpretation to what the other party uh, said is, um, is claiming. And in most instances, we go to the second rule in Article 8, which is very common law. We use the understanding of a reasonable person in the same position as a party receiving the statement, listening to the statement, or um, seeing, watching the conduct of the other party to uh, unveil the meaning of such a statement or conduct. And that's the rule that usually operates for contract interpretation in the CIG. No, interesting. You know, it, it's, it's always interesting in this, uh, particularly in this convention, how you are, which is like arbitration, where you're trying to combine two legal worlds, right? The, the I'm generalizing, but the common law world and the civil law world with its tradition and its way to analyze or address legal problems. And this is, you try to come up with compromises, which I think in this instance are very clear about the civil law intention prevails and the common law that the parole evidence rule, right? That whatever it's specifically in the text, in the four corners of the contract apply. So it's a bit of a middle ground that they try to, seems to me that they are trying to approach here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's more the reasonable person standard because yeah, it's interesting yeah. what you, when you mentioned the, the parallel evidence rule, actually the CIG will not apply the parallel evidence rule or the, or the plain meaning rule because the third number of Article 8 tells us that Unless the parties had decided otherwise, the negotiations or, or conduct subsequent to the formation of the contract may be taken into consideration when interpreting what a reasonable person meant or what the subjective understanding was. But it's good you mentioned this. And, and, and a different thing I wanted to mention from your comment, Eduardo, is that in many instances, in practice, you will see uh, contracts where lawyers decide to exclude the application of the CAG. And in, in, in some of the surveys carried out to understand why they are excluding the CAG, it's interesting to see that the answer is because, and this is the answer from the common lawyers, 
they say, because it looks too continental European, to civil law. And then when you see the answers of those lawyers from civil law tradition, they tend to exclude it because they say, no, I think the rules are too common law oriented, too common law characterized. As a matter of fact, the CIG is a great compromise between both worlds, as, both worlds, as you mentioned, and is, is very similar to arbitration uh, simply because they were created by comparative law uh, working groups. No, very good. Yes, very interesting. And yeah, I, I've seen in many contracts, right, that would otherwise ap- apply where there's where this, there's this opt-out from the CISG. And, you know, of course, myself being a disputes lawyer, I get the contract once the, the dispute has arisen. And, and it's very interesting. Sometimes you ask the questions, why did you exclude it? And there's no, not a very clear answer <laughs> to the question, Correct. which is interesting. Uh, let me ask you something about another area that is interesting. I think it's about remedies. And what are the, I mean, in case of breach, of contractual breach, what is the general framework of the CISG in that regard? Yes, you have, um, there are several remedies that a party may access in case of breach. And, and the principal remedy is damages. Damages in case of breach, they are the main rule for this Remedy is in Article 74, and Article 74 embodies the principle of full compensation. So there, there you may find uh, something which is particularly similar in, in all jurisdictions. The CAG also provides for the remedy of a specific performance. But here there is an interesting provision, which is Article 28, that states that in, in case the judge of the court knowing of a CAG claim would not provide for the remedy of a specific performance according to its own law, he is entitled to deny that remedy. And that is a reflection of a very big compromise with the common law tradition because you know that under the common law, especially in the sale of goods, the remedy of a specific performance is not the main remedy, is damages. Correct. And the specific performance is only granted in cases where damages would not place the aggrieved party in a position it should have been if the contract had, had been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It's an equity remedy uh, historically. So it's, it's only available in case of goods which are particular, which are specialized, which are not available in the market. What we call in the civil law tradition on, on fungible goods mm-hmm. when the goods are commodities that can be that can be obtained um, easily in the market the remedy is damages and in that regard uh, the law the common law judge the common law judge would be entitled to deny the remedy of a specific performance and only grant the remedy of damages if according to its own law that would meet that would not be the proper remedy you have all the, also other remedies uh, that are common in both both legal traditions, like price reduction in the case of non-conforming goods. Um, you have the remedy of substitution of the goods, and you have the remedy of avoidance of the contract. For those two remedies, good substitution and avoidance of the contract, the breach must be a fundamental one. 
that means that not a minor breach, a minor breach may not be enough mm-hmm. to access those two remedies. And the rationale for that, in particular for international trade, is that it's not cost efficient to request the delivery of substitute goods in case of breach regarding non-conformity of the goods. Yeah. And it wouldn't be cost efficient to grant the remedy of avoidance of the contract because in those two instances, the effect is that the goods that were first delivered should go back or, or are meant to go back to the seller. And that, that involves cost, for uh, cost or inability to dispose of the goods easily for the seller. Um, and so this is something that uh, people should remember. Uh, the remedy of avoidance and good substitution is subject to a breach, which is fundamental. No, uh, it's, it makes, I think, perfect sense in the context of trying to make easier international trade, not more difficult. And this, this it goes in line very well with that. Just uh, want to confirm, duty, of, duty to mitigate damages is also available, right, under CISG? Correct. It's, a, it's, a, it's an obligation of, of the party who suffers the breach. Is there in Articles uh, 77? And there are some um, different ways to calculate damages under the principle of full compensation also in the convention. There are two specific ones in 75 and 76, for example, by taking into account the price that uh, substitute goods would have at the time of, of delivery, you compare the goods that you acquire from a third uh, seller and you discount uh, the excess from the original price and there you have your damage. You can also do that with by reference to the market price at the time of, of delivery in case the goods are subject to market prices. Very interesting. Let me conclude with a question that it's a current debate, right, in the context of CISG and arbitration, an interplay of, of, of CISG and arbitration. Obviously, uh, you have the arbitral tribunals apply the substantive law, at times the CISG, uh, to adjudicate disputes before them. But what about in the context of the formation of the arbitration agreement? Will CISG play a role in understanding the, the adjudication issues arising from the formation of the arbitration agreement? Eduardo, that's, that's, that's a current debate and uh, because the CISG has an, a unique Supreme Court, but uh, it's applied um, all over the world by arbitral tribunals and, and state courts. Well, the answer, um, the answer is, is not yet clear. We have different approaches, but I can comment on what seems to be um, mm-hmm. The majority view in a scholarly writings as well as in court decisions and arbitral awards. The CSG, as you mentioned, uh, contains, or as we mentioned, contains um, rules on formation of the contract and duties and obligations of the parties for the contract of sale. And in principle, that uh, prima facie, that wouldn't be a proper law to apply to the arbitration agreement. However, there are two provisions in the CISG that refer to dispute resolution clauses that have been taken by scholars and courts and arbitral tribunal to infer that 
the CSG may have a role or the provision of the CSG may apply to arbitration agreements as dispute resolution clauses. These two provisions are Article 19 that considers that when there is an acceptance that modifies that modifies a dispute resolution clause in the offer, that acceptance is considered a counteroffer. And the other is Article uh, 41 that states that the winding up determination of the sales contract does not mean the termination of the dispute resolution clause. So based on these two clauses, there is a majority view saying that in, for arbitration clauses inserted in a contract of sales governed by the CSG, the CSG may govern the formation of the uh, arbitration clause as well. So whenever in the arbitration there is a dispute regarding whether the arbitration agreement exists with regard to one of the parties, the rules of the CSG concerning offer and acceptance and incorporation of its standard terms, the rules that derive uh, from these provisions, will apply to determine whether the arbitration agreement exists. This is the starting point of the discussion. And, and that's been the solution since, since the early time, for example, uh, district court from the South District in, in New York in 92, in the case, I, I got the, the name here, hold on a second. Yes, in the Filanto versus Chihuahua case, Chile, which case, sorry, stated that the CAG would apply to first establish whether there was meeting of mind and also to interpret that there was meeting of my, uh, the, the conduct of the parties with regard to the existence of the arbitration agreement. There is also a case from the Supreme uh, Court in Spain, the Epic Center, La Palencia, which took the same approach. And very recently, there is a case from the German Supreme Court from 26 November 2020 that basically also confirmed this, um, this rule. The issue gets a bit more complicated or there is even more debate with regards to the question whether the CAG may apply to the formal validity of the arbitration agreement. If we remember what I just said, that the scholars and courts have mentioned that because there is these two provisions that makes reference to uh, dispute resolution clauses, the CAG would apply to the formation. Well, the CAG also has provisions on formal validity of the sales contract. And basically, we have Article 11 that tells us that the sales contract doesn't need to prove or may be proven by any means. It, not only, it, not, it is not only proven in writing. And most countries have adhered to this rule, most contracting states of the convention, except for a handful of countries which made a reservation stating that for them, every contract needed to, uh, sales contract needed to be proven in writing. But if, if we took the primary rule that the sales contract may be proven by any means, including witnesses, that would mean that arbitration clauses in CISG contract could also be proven orally and that the provisions on formal validity of the arbitration agreement in some lex arbitris would be displaced, would not be applicable. This approach haven't been accepted. And it haven't been accepted because most scholars and courts consider that 
the formal validity issue in the Lex Arbitri and also in the New York Convention is it's something that protects the procedural effects of the arbitration clause. That means the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal. And that's a matter of procedure, not of substantive law. And therefore, the CSG should not have anything to say on that, on formal validity. That's basically the, the, the argument. Uh, but the, still, there are some other that state, well, under the, New York Conver- under the New York Convention on Recognition and Enforcement, if we look at the principle of the most favorable law and the principle that the in-writing requirement is a maximum requirement, it should be possible to apply the CSG. So these are arguments that have been placed on the table by scholars, especially these two arguments, but haven't, haven't found any echo in, 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 in the practice or at least in, in court decisions. Uh, so the, the debate is, is ongoing. Um, let me just mention something interesting. In this 26 November 2020 decision of the German Supreme Court, the parties have excluded the application of the CAG mm. for, the, for the contract itself. And the Supreme Court decided to apply the CAG to the formation of the arbitration agreement uh, based on the separability principle. It is stated that that exclusion apply only to the contract, but as the arbitration agreement was separate and the logo burning the arbitration agreement was a national law that included the CAG, it decided to apply the CAG for, to the formation of consent and incorporation or not of an arbitration clause into the Paris contract. So it's a very interesting decision that last one from the German Supreme Court. No, for sure. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, and, and you know, and it's a perfect way to, to wrap up our, our very insightful uh, conversation as, so that we can have more to come in this debate. And hopefully we can have you, Edgardo, soon in the future as, as new decisions come along uh, addressing this issue. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Eduardo. Thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.